Good morning. Good morning. Good to see everybody. A bunch of lovely faces. It's good to have another opportunity to try and teach. As Pastor Tim mentioned, we've been going through the pastoral epistles, which are First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. And Brother Chris and Bennett have led us through First Timothy. If you've been coming to Sunday school, you'll remember that. And uh, now I'm picking up in the book of Second Timothy. So you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Second Timothy. Tim, I don't have a handout for you, so I'm trying to become your favorite teacher by not giving you any paperwork. <laughs> but, um, so hopefully that's working. <clears throat> um, so just a little bit of introduction for a second, Timothy. What do you know about uh, Paul and Timothy's relationship? The father-son. It's almost like a father-son relationship, and Paul thinks of Timothy as his son that he's mentored in the faith. They're very close to one another um, and have a very tight bond, and so... Paul is now writing, this is his second letter to Timothy, and uh, this was written to Timothy while Timothy was at Ephesus, where Paul had urged him to stay. If you'll remember from 1 Timothy, Paul urges, uh, um, Paul urges um, Timothy to stay there and teach sound doctrine and basically be the minister there at Ephesus. And so we know that uh, Paul was imprisoned in Rome when he wrote this letter because he calls himself a prisoner. And also because of the people who send their salutations in the letter we know to be Romans in 2 Timothy 4.21. says, Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. And we know them to be Roman citizens. So we know Paul was, this is during his second imprisonment in Rome, which was much different than his first imprisonment. And we'll talk more on that later as well. And it's uncertain as to exactly when the book was written. Most believe it was written toward the end of Paul's life, shortly before his martyrdom and uh, dated somewhere around 67 AD. Most believe this is the last epistle that Paul wrote. And so I think 1 Timothy was approximately three to five years earlier than when 2 Timothy was written. And the purpose of the letter is to stir up Timothy to be a faithful and diligent, or to be faithful and diligent in his duty to be a minister of the gospel and to abide by the truths of the gospel and to encourage him to suffer patiently, cheerfully, and courageously for the sake of the gospel. So that's primarily why Paul is writing this letter. And some people have referred to Timothy as Timid Timothy um, because he is, for whatever reason, timid. I don't know if we really get the exact reason, but it's kind of uh, maybe a little bit intimidated by his call to be a minister and is questioning whether he wants to continue doing it. And so Paul writes this letter um, to encourage him and to motivate him to keep going in the faith, especially given the persecution that was going on during the time. is probably something that could have led to it. Nero was persecuting the Christians around this time, which is probably why Paul was in prison. And so that's could be why Timothy was a little bit uh, timid. And so Paul is writing to encourage him. It was also to warn him against false teachers, both those present and those who would come in the future, and not to be discouraged by the amount of people who would follow him or follow those false teachers. And then lastly, to request his presence with him in Rome. So that's a brief introduction. Any comments, questions on that so far? Of Second Timothy. So we'll go ahead and uh, get into the text then, and we'll read. I'll read the entire first chapter. We're not going to get to all of that today, but uh, just be thinking of things that might stick out to you as I read this, um, and then we'll talk about it. So Second Timothy chapter one, starting in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, 
and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus, or Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So, any thoughts, comments, questions that you might have on anything in the first chapter there? They're near the end. It sounds so personal. It almost seemed like a little bit of uncomfortability that I was looking into a personal relationship there. That he was talking about these friends that had searched him out and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. And I haven't actually gotten there in my studies yet, so I can't make a lot of comments on those. But, but yeah, um, yeah. apparently some people, or a lot of people, had turned away from Paul, probably uh, given to his strong teaching towards them and exhortation. And some of them were Phygelus and Hermogenes. Anything else? Great. How about you mentioned his grandmother and his mother? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get there. Um, the profound influence that his grandmother and mother had and that really speaks to the role of the woman and the mother that, and the influence that they can have on children. And so, yeah, we'll talk about that. And, and there was really the only uh, Christian influence that Timothy had in his life. His father was not a believer. So, yeah, we'll get to that. Anything else? Go ahead, Bennett. Yeah, I think uh, verse 7, uh, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. I think sometimes we look at the... Christian ministry, and we look at the challenges and the difficulties and you know, the persecution, but we focus less that God is powerful. Mm-hmm. Last time we spoke about his immortality mm-hmm. and all of that, and that should help us to conquer the fear mm-hmm. that intimidates us. When we, you know, right, yeah, and to know that God's sovereign over all things and has planned all things, I think, can uh, be a great comfort to us. So we'll go ahead and dive in and see what the Lord's teaching us here. So uh, starting with the greeting, I'm not going to go too deep into the greeting or salutation as sometimes called because Chris went over the greeting in 1 Timothy and it's fairly similar. And if you've been coming to Wednesday Night Bible Study, we've been going through the greeting in Romans for about a year now. So, <laughs> uh, But there's a lot in that one, so there, there's a lot to go through. So I'm not going to go too deep into it, but there are a couple things that uh, I would like to point out. And first notice that in this letter, as well as in 1 Timothy, Paul asserts his apostleship. And why is that interesting? Well, why would Paul need to assert his apostleship to Timothy? Timothy knows that Paul's an apostle. Timothy agrees that Paul's an apostle. Um, So there would be no real reason for Paul to do that unless Paul has other people in mind here that he's writing to. So I don't think this is simply a personal letter to Timothy. Paul would have 
uh, had in mind that other people are going to read this letter and take instruction from it. And I think that's evident there that Paul states his apostleship so that they will know that he is an apostle according to the will of God. I mean, this would be like if Pastor Tim was to write a letter to Benjamin, who's off in college, and say that, you know, dear Benjamin, this is Tim, pastor of Trinity Baptist Church or something like that. He wouldn't need to do that. Benjamin knows that he's pastor of Trinity Baptist Church. Um, so to me, I think that's kind of uh, what we can draw from that is that Paul had in mind other people when he was writing this, which led to an interesting question as I was studying this, um, that there's, there's kind of debate within evangelical circles on the answer to it, uh, and that is, did Paul know that he was writing Scripture when he was writing Scripture? So I don't know. I was just going to open that up to anybody if they have thoughts or comments on that. Um, anybody looked into that topic at all? Did, did Paul know that? Go ahead. I mean, do you want me to answer that? Sure. Yeah, I think he absolutely did. Um, you know, to make commands that are binding on all believers, you kind of got to know that you're speaking on God's behalf. Mm -hmm. um, and then to say, you know, several of his letters he wants, like, circulated around other churches. Right. So he's, he's viewing what he's writing as scripture. Um, so, I mean, it does get kind of mysterious because when Paul's, like, just chit-chatting with his friends, he's not speaking the word of God. But somehow when he's writing an authoritative letter, it becomes the word of God. Mm -hmm. like when and how that happens, and how, how he knows that, we don't really know. But there, there does seem to be some sense in which he knows I'm um, speaking for God. And it, because, you know, he'll talk about if you disobey these commands, you're not disobeying me, you're disobeying mm -hmm. um, So however that all works out, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah, I would agree. I, I think I brought some of those passages up. But I think he definitely understands and recognizes that he has the authority of an apostle and is speaking with that authority. Um, whether he would have known that this is going to be included in a New Testament, attached to the Old Testament, that kind of, I don't know if he would have known that, but he did know that what he was writing um, was authoritative and was the Word of God, and there's a couple of passages that call that out. And so if you look at, uh, we don't have to turn there, but First uh, Thessalonians 2.13, and we also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And so he's saying there that the scriptures that I brought to you, that my own or writings that I brought to you, these, this is the word of God. And he's thanking them that they've realized that this is the word of God and not simply just what Paul's opinion and what he thinks. And First Thessalonians 4, 8 in the same book, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you the, the, his Holy Spirit. Again, this isn't just Paul's opinion of what he thinks. Uh, he is claiming that this is from God. And so it's pretty clear that Paul uh, has a high view of his own writings, not because they're his own, but because they're from God. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And so I think it's pretty clear that Paul knew what he was writing authoritative. Again, kind of what you bring up, though, the question I would have is like, how does what's the difference when he, because he wrote other letters that, we, that are not in the canon. So, you know, what... How did he know the difference? I don't think God like came to him and said, "You know, this one you're writing, this one's scripture, and this one it's not. You don't have the Spirit with you on this one, or something like that." So I don't. It is kind of interesting to think about how Paul knew exactly um, the difference between his writings and which ones are scripture. But anybody else have comments or? I can see how he he was at a bit of a disadvantage. People are questioning his apostleship. If you put it in today's, if someone came up and said, "I'm an apostle." You were persecuting us after Jesus died. You know, Stephen died, was martyred, the first martyr, after the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so you were 
you're persecuting us after that, and now you're saying you're speaking the word of God. I can see how people would, would question his apostleship. So every chance he had, you know, he would he would mm-hmm. declare his apostleship and say, "Look, this this is the word of God." Yeah, you you could definitely understand that. I mean, somebody who was very against the Christian church today came up to you and told you they were well, obviously we don't have apostles today, but told you that they were speaking for God. You'd be very questionable as to whether that's true or not. But um, I just thought that was an interesting little. Oh, go ahead. Uh, along, I mean, on this discussion, it's helpful to be reminded that the creation of the Bible, like itself, is a miracle. You know, there are a lot of miracles in the Bible, obviously. You know, resurrection, walking out of water, and whatnot. But even the process that God somehow controlled, you know, Moses and David and Peter and Paul, uh, so that what they're writing is the very word of God. That too is a miracle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I know that some people get kind of weirded out by that. But you know, God can do miracles. Why couldn't He then do a miracle in the creation of Scripture? Mm-hmm. Certainly, if there was a miracle in the creation of this universe. So, you know, if you recognize that there is a universe, you recognize God can do miracles. And if you agree with what the Bible says about itself, that God did a miracle, then it's not as wild of a stretch as some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you don't look at the Bible just like, you know, these guys journaling about their experiences or something like that. God actually did a miracle so that when Peter, Paul, Moses, David put pen to paper, they're somehow writing the very word of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We want it no other way. Yeah, I would agree that there, yeah, God definitely worked through them, and it may be mysterious as to how that all worked out, but it definitely shouldn't be a problem of believing that it was possible to to happen. And then one of the reasons why it's important, I think, there's a misconception that there was a council in the fourth century that people believe is when people or the church came together and dated the can or put the canon together, the books that are in your Bible. Um, and if that was the case, then the people for the first three centuries or, or whatnot would not have known what Scripture was, and they would not have recognized it as the Word of God. And so if Paul didn't know that he was writing Scripture, uh, then it would have it just kind of been a free-for-all, like, I don't regard that as Scripture, so I'm not going to do that or whatnot. So uh, that can be important. And then also it would mean that the church is the one deciding what the books of the Bible are, which is basically giving the authority to the church, which if you know anything more about the Roman Catholic religion, the authority is a pretty much with the church, even though they wouldn't say that. And that can lead you down a lot of uh, wrong paths. So I do think it has some important implications. I'm probably not smart enough to draw all of them out for you, but um, it's an interesting uh, topic that I, I thought was worth spending some time on. So I'll keep moving on. Um, let's see. Paul almost always, so this is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul almost always asserts that he is an apostle by the will of God. And Paul is making it clear that he is not an apostle, uh, a self-proclaimed apostle. He did not give himself this position. Um, He didn't take this because he thought it would be a cool job to have or a fun job to have or that it would give him fame or power or anything like that. He is an apostle because God has called him to be an apostle. And so we don't have apostles today, but we do have pastors today, and these are the pastoral epistles. And so... um, I think it would be appropriate to understand how can one be certain that he has been called to be a pastor of a local church. So does anybody have thoughts on that? Well, go ahead. You're the one that was called. You, 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 might, you might know a little bit about this. Oh, real quick. Uh, how do you discern that you're a pastor? I think like 90% of it is the recognition of your local church. Uh, a lot of people think they're pastors, but like are manifestly not gifted or qualified. 
Um, now, certainly, I mean, if you don't have, if you have like absolutely zero desire, that, that's concerning. Um, but so many guys, you know, who've been around churches have wound up in the pastor and they clearly have no business being there. And this is not a new thing. This goes back you know, hundreds of years. But I think it's particularly common in modern America where, like, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can do anything and you, know, you follow your dreams and all that. Uh, that has, like, devastated the church. So basically what you should do, in my opinion, is get as involved as you can in a local church. And sooner or later, people are going to start commenting and being like, hey, you're halfway decent at teaching. Or, you know, you, obviously, this is going to take years. You know, it's not going to have like one weekend or something like that. But through that, you start exploring. And if you see that, you know, yeah, I, I can kind of see it. And obviously, your life's got to be in order. There's the whole like, first thing you know, if you have... You know, even if the church is saying we think you're gifted to preach or teach, but you got like a serious sin issue that's dragging you down, you know, working on that before you, you know, pursue ministry. Um, but really, at the end of the day, a lot of it comes back to the church's affirmation. And you think you see that in First Corinthians where it talks about the different parts of the body. You know, you got the eye, you got the ear. Well, you know, the body as a body is designed to like recognize giftedness. It's not just me, you know following my heart or some such nonsense. You know, so that's where I'd encourage you to begin. Start getting plugged in over time, see how people are commending you and uh just kind of see where it goes. Um that's kind of like a quick yeah. second. Yeah, I would agree. And and there's definitely a lot of pastors, if you want to call them that, that just go into the ministry because they think it's a cool job or a fun job to have or maybe I only have to work on Sundays or Wednesdays and we know if that's if it's done correctly, that's certainly not the case. Um, but a lot of people, I think, think that, or maybe because their dad was a pastor, that means that I'm that means I can be a pastor, and that's not necessarily the case. And so it's a high calling with high responsibility, and so you should be certain uh, that you have been called uh, before you pursue something like that. So I wrote down a couple ways, which was a lot of what Pastor Tim said. I, the first way would be diligent prayer um, to continually ask that God would reveal his will to you. That if you are called in that way, that uh, God would lead you that way. And then the second would be, uh, deep conviction of the Holy Spirit that there's really no other option for you to pursue, that God has called you in this way and that he's gifted you in this way and that you feel the call to the ministry. And then the third, what Pastor Tim was talking about there, is the recommendation from other godly saints as well as other faithful pastors who have been called by God. So most likely your local church, um, if you have, you know, hopefully they've seen you teach, heard you teach or something, they think you might possibly have the gift um, to be a pastor, I think you should also have that recommendation as well, and, and not the recommendation of just anybody, but but faithful believers, because there's a lot of people that will tell you, like, you know, I think you make a good pastor, but they're not living a Christian life themselves. They're like, I don't know how much that means to me, but um, so hopefully godly saints and faithful pastors have also recommended, and then what he said, uh, you meet the qualifications laid out in 1 Timothy 3, uh, that uh, Brother Bennett went over uh, with us a couple weeks ago. And so I think if all these things are true uh, in your life, uh, then you can be certain that you have been called by God to be a pastor. So we'll discuss more on this later in the chapter, but it's important to recognize that Paul uh, was convinced of his calling. So then we get to, uh, this is to Timothy, my beloved child. Uh, did I skip the page? I don't have a page. I don't think... No, 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 I didn't skip a page. Never mind. We're good to go. Uh, to Timothy, my beloved child. Uh, so again, this talks to the close relationship that uh, Timothy and Paul had. He, he thinks of him as his own child. He thinks of him as him fathering him like as he's grown up. Um, and then he says, grace, uh, mercy, and peace 
Where is this? Okay, no, I skipped. I skipped it over. Sorry. The will of God. So back up a little bit. By the will of God, Paul and Apostle, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Any thoughts on that? Other than Pastor Tim, maybe. <laughs> Bennett? Yeah, I was thinking about it. I think it's talking about conversion and its implications, not just for this life, but also the world to come. Because, like you said, uh, when Paul is nearing the end of his life, mm-hmm. he's emphasizing the, the life that is in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. We understand from other parts of Scripture that it covers. The life here and then the life to come. Mm-hmm. So, you know, knowing the Lord is, you know, eternal, eternal life, you know, it's both here and then mm-hmm. the future to yeah, I think it does have, it definitely has to do with uh, eternal life is what it's talking about. That's the life that is in Christ Jesus. Why do you think it's connected with Paul's calling to be an apostle? Why do you think he would include that right after um, saying that he's been called to be an apostle? Any, any thoughts on that? Maybe what Chris pointed out that he's been such a scoundrel for so long that the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus is really the good news of salvation for anybody who mm-hmm. it could be Christ. So, will of God according to the gospel, according to the Bible say on the apostles. Yeah, yeah, I think that could very well be uh, the reason for it. One of the uh, interpretations that I found is that Paul is furthering the certainty of his calling to be an apostle. And so almost as if to say that with the same certainty that God has promised life in Christ Jesus, so too has he, so too is the certainty that he has called me to be an apostle. That was one possible interpretation that I found. And another one, which I think I agree more so with this one, is that the reason Paul has been called to be an apostle is because of the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know if that's kind of what you were saying, Drew, there. And so... Um, I would uh, agree. So, I could basically read that that Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, because of the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, and this is the reason for anything in the Christian life. If you're a pastor, if you're a Sunday school teacher, a serving the nursery, whatever, the reason you're doing this is because we have the hope that is in Christ Jesus. If we don't have that, there would be no reason uh, to do anything, or really anything in life. Honestly, um, it all comes back to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, and I think that's what Paul's saying here. This is the reason I'm called to be an apostle is because of uh, this promise in life that is Christ Jesus and to proclaim that life. And so the life here is certainly talking about uh, eternal life uh, that is found in Christ Jesus. And uh, this also would have been a promise that was especially precious to Paul, I think, at this time. Because, again, as we mentioned this, he's in uh, the second imprisonment here that's much different from his first. The first one was more of like a house arrest. And this one is uh, he's in chains, uh, according to what he says here. And um, it's it's a little bit more brutal, and he, I think he recognizes that and thinks is anticipating that he's probably not going to get out of this one. And so I think the, the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus uh, would have been very precious to him at this time. I don't know if anybody's ever had like a near-death experience. I, I have not of any extreme manner, but I imagine if that was the case, or if I were uh, in a near-death experience, that I would be clinging pretty closely to um, the life that is in Christ Jesus. And I think that's possibly why he includes that here. Again, given that this is the last epistle that Paul wrote, um, and that uh, you know he's anticipating he might not be living much longer, 
um, that he writes this, because this is the only place where it appears in any of his greetings is, is in this letter right here. It doesn't appear in the other ones, so that could be a reason why. Um, any comments, questions before we move on? Yeah, what do you think about just to be, you know, just kind of saying, you know, that's my purpose of apostleship is to preach the gospel. Yeah. Timothy saying that? Yeah, you see him. Yeah, I mean, it, that would be the purpose. Again, like I was saying, it's the purpose of anybody's uh, reason to, to serve in any capacity is because of the promise that is in Christ Jesus. And without that, why would why would we, you know, labor and do all you're sorts of things? Yeah, you're giving that heart. He's given, that's given to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Christ gets the credit, right? Not Paul. Right, yeah, yeah. He has something to do. I, I think, uh, uh, I mentioned this during the that meeting last week is a very important point because you know think about it that I mean we are born we get into our careers we marry we have all kinds of dreams but the bottom line is that we have to answer that question do you have that promise of life that that eternal life mm-hmm. you know if, if everything in life is important but this is the greatest because Whatever it is, you, you fulfill your career, you become a president, you become anything. But a time is going to come, you have to deal with that question. Mm-hmm. You know, and most people don't come to that realization until they are at the end of mm-hmm. their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if... so it's something that we have to settle with. You know, you have that promise of life. And what distinguishes is you have life. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big question that we have to ask ourselves because we love the pleasure we have, I mean, mm-hmm. we love the sports, we have everything. But yeah. are we occupied with that promise of life? Mm-hmm. Because you have to deal with it at some point in time. Yeah, I mean, that's the most important question in anybody's life is whether or not they have that promise of life. You can have all the success you want or be as rich and famous as you uh, could possibly desire, but you don't have the promise of life. I mean, there's nothing. It's all passing away. So uh, moving on then, notice it says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is different from Paul's other epistles to the churches where he only includes grace and peace. But in First and Second Timothy, as well as Titus, he includes mercy. So any thoughts or ideas as to why he might include mercy in those epistles but not the other ones? I think it could be that uh, pastors and ministers are in need, because it's written to, First, Second Timothy and Titus are written to ministers, and the other ones are written just to churches. So I think it could be that pastors and ministers are in need of more mercy than others are. And uh, it, may, it might sound weird, I guess, but we're all, of course, in need of a great deal of mercy. Um, but we know that pastors from Scripture are held to a higher standard than other people are. As we read in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so I think baby Paul, being an apostle and minister of the gospel himself, recognizes the high calling that Timothy and Titus have, and in a way of relating to him, he's, is, is praying that the Lord would have mercy upon them. And then Charles Spurgeon writes this about it. Did you ever notice that this, this one thing about Christian ministers, that they need even more mercy than other people? Although everybody needs mercy, ministers need it more than anybody else, and so we do. For if we are not faithful, we shall be greater sinners even than our hearers, and it needs much grace for us always to be faithful, and much mercy will be required to cover our shortcomings. So I shall take those three things to myself, grace, mercy, and peace. You may have the two, grace and peace, but I need mercy more than any of you, 
So I take it from my Lord's loving hand, and I will trust and not be afraid, despite all my shortcomings and feebleness and blunders and mistakes in the course of my whole ministry. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, again, as we documented, the call to the ministry is a high calling, is a large responsibility, and you're held to a higher standard, and if you're not faithful in that, um, you'll be judged more strictly for that. That being said, there is mercy from God, and, and I think that's, again, why Paul's saying that we need much mercy. Uh, and that ministers would need much mercy. Um, and so moving on to verse 3 then. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And so once again, we are shown the incredibly high view that Paul has of prayer and his dedication to it. And can you think of other uh, sections in Paul's letter where he talks this way or talks about this kind of prayer? Um, in his other letters, anybody, anything that comes to mind? It may not be verses that you have memorized, I guess, but really after a lot of his greetings and his epistles, he starts off with something like this, like, I thank God always for all of you, continually. I, I always thank God in my prayers. And so I wrote down a couple of the uh, examples from his other epistles where he uh, speaks this way. In Romans 1.8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. That thanking God, of course, is in prayer. In 1 Corinthians 1 4, always, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 3 and 5, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Colossians 1 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 1 Thessalonians 1 2, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love of all, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. And then Philemon 1, 4, and 5, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. So you probably get the picture, but Paul is constantly praying to God and thanking him for other believers. And so consider Paul's prayer list um, and the amount of people that were on it. it would, he would have had to have spent an extraordinary amount of time in prayer um, to include all these people. And I, he probably didn't pray for all of these people every single time he prayed, but I think it was fairly frequently that he was making mention of these um, all of these other brothers and sisters in Christ uh, and believers and thanking God for them. So uh, Paul clearly views prayer as, as very important, and so should we. I feel like I should say that and then run over there and sit down and actually listen to that because uh, I don't think I do that as much as I should. But in, in, in preparing for this teaching, it's convicted me to try to do better at that. And uh, so I think we should make it regular practice to pray over the church's prayer requests. So I don't know if you guys are on the email or not that Pastor Tim sends out uh, Wednesdays and Sundays uh, for, the, for the prayer requests of the church. If not, you can talk to him or talk to Kyle and, and get on that. But... Um, you know, at least once you get them, go over them at least one. I mean, if not every day, uh, you know, pray over those things. I think we're called to do that as a church. And so, uh, and we should also be doing this continuously like Paul, as he says, he prays night and day, as he says there at the end of the verse there, constantly in my prayers night and day. And then not only should we pray for one another, but I think we should uh, make it a point to let others know that we are praying for them. I think that uh, can be an incredible encouragement to people when they know that somebody's thinking about them or have been praying for them. I know a couple of you have told me that you're praying for me for my Sunday school lessons, and that has been a great encouragement to me. Um, so I'm thankful for that. Um, but we should make it a point to let others know 
uh, that we are praying for them. Think of the encouragement it would have been for Timothy to know that the Apostle Paul is continually praying for him. Again, he's timid and he's a little anxious and doesn't quite know what to believe, what to expect, or whether to go forward. And then to get this encouragement from Paul that says, I'm continually praying for you, I think would help motivate him to, to press forward. So, any thoughts, comments on that? Yeah, you want? One thing, uh, I don't do enough job of it, but I like to check in with the people that I pray for. Mm-hmm. And, well, for me, I mean, it's self, right? Well, that was selfishness a bit, but I get to see what God's doing. Yeah. You know, and I think that's encouraging <coughs> to me to look, God is using my prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Five sentences or two words. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Not only can it be encouraging to them, but it can be encouraging to you to see that God has answered your prayers. Uh, go ahead. Off the top of it, but I think you just mentioned mercy, and then Paul says that he thanks God with a clear conscience. And I, I'm going to stop and think about that. You just talk about how Paul persecuted the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, if Jeffrey Dahmer or Charles Manson said, I've got a clear conscience, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, that would be hard to ever really feel like I'm not guilty of something that's yeah, that's a good point. We were talking about that a little bit too, but yeah, that would be would be hard to serve with a clear conscience, I think, having known your past, but that speaks to his understanding of the gospel, understanding of the sufficiency of, of Christ and his grace. So yeah, that's a good point there. Um, so uh, so then we, we get into that. Um, that this phrase, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers. Um, I think Paul makes this declaration of, as did my ancestors, in opposition to the common charge that was against him, um, that he's basically forsaken the true God and he has made up a new God of his own. Um, and he's now charging you to do all these things that really aren't in Scripture. This is this is not the God that Moses and, and Abraham and, and Jacob served. This is something that you've come up with on your own. And he, uh, this happens in Acts 24, 14 through 16, when Paul is brought before Felix the judge, and he's charged with this very thing that you've, you're causing all kinds of strife and and disunity because you're you've made up this new God. And Paul says this in defense of himself. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect, being the Jews who charged him. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And so, again, Paul is saying, I am serving the same God uh, that Abraham and Moses and and David all served and so I think that's why he includes that in here. Now, one thing to be careful, this is certainly not what Paul is saying here, but is to not put your trust in what you believe in, in the fact that your ancestors believe that. Um, I think this is a common error that people make, is that they, you know, if my family believed this for generations and generations, then it has to be right, and I, you know, I don't hesitate to go against it. And so um, that's what I think uh, we should be careful to guard against. Um, I think a lot of people like, you know, if you are in a false religion, I know we, as we're all Roman Catholics from where we're from, and it's difficult for them to leave that religion if so much of their family has uh, been involved in it for so long. And so our confidence is not in the fact that our ancestors or our parents or anybody 
believe this, but um, of the actual text itself is where our confidence lies. So, um, go ahead. Yeah, on that point, that's really been an encouragement to me. You know, when I get, the, especially with the world, the way that the world's going, becoming so antagonistic to Christianity and everything, you kind of pause and reflect, okay, I'm actually not doing something new. You know, I'm in the same family line that goes, you know, includes like Charles Spurgeon and George Whitfield mm-hmm. and Martin Luther, you know, going back all the way to Bible times and, you know, Peter, Paul, you keep going. Uh, so really, I'm not I'm not the weird one in, in a way. Like the world is the weird one. You know, I'm just sort of continuing on with the, the family tradition that's been going on for thousands of years. Uh, I found that encouraging. You know, when you're tempted to kind of despair because the world seems to have gone you know gone crazy. Um, it's also a helpful reminder to think about the way in which like our relations in the faith are far more important than our biological relations. You know, it's possible your parents, grandparents, great grandparents didn't know the Lord. But what's more important is that they were believers that you're connected to going back mm-hmm. generations all the way to like Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. And, that's, and that family of faith is infinitely more important than your like bloodline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there should be a line of, if God is faithful to preserve a remnant throughout all the time, or all the ages, you should be able to trace that back. And thankfully, because of Scripture, we can see that there was people that who believed in the same God um, from the beginning, and, and now... We in this present time believe in that same God. Um, so, oh, and Paul says that he serves God with a clear conscience. And uh, as, as Drew kind of mentioned, that would be a, a difficult thing for him to do given his history. Um, but he's saying that he's not doing this service for any type of selfish gain, whether it be for financial gain or for power or for or to be praised by men. Um, but he's doing this because he's been called by God and uh, wants to bring the glory to God. And so can you think of things that hinder us from serving with a clear conscience in our Christian life? Anything that comes to mind? Our mortal memories. You're, what's that? God can forget. You know, God forgives and forgets, but then we still remember. Oh, yeah. You know, I know mm-hmm. sometimes it's... Well, I'm such a wretched sinner that, you know, how can I, mm-hmm. how can I do this? How can, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's kind of what Drew was saying. Like when you think back upon your past and how wicked or rebellious you've been in the past and think, you know, how could God possibly have mercy on me? Um, but to remind yourself of his grace again, which is what makes the gospel so wonderful. In reality, that we still presence in. It's hard to, and I know this isn't the right way of thinking, but sometimes you, well, yeah, it's easy for Jesus to be old, you know, sin, you know, I can't, I can't stand up to mm-hmm. deception and false teaching because I myself struggle with it, but it's like you said, I'm not urgent for because I'm not a pastor, I have to remind myself. Yeah. It doesn't give me an excuse not to stand for the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. There's some cap here. I think unconfessed sin would be a huge one that 
hinders people from serving with a clear conscience. Um, maybe anger towards somebody else or unforgiveness towards somebody else, whatever it might be. Uh, you need to confess that. And go ahead, Bennett. I think that when we look at the first book, we spoke about people making merchandise of people. Making what? Merchandise of people. Merchandise of people. Yes, the love of money. Oh, yeah. Which is motivating some people to be in ministry. Mm -hmm. And Paul could speak that. Yeah. He has a clear conscience. Yeah, he's not doing that. He hasn't taken more selfish gain. Yeah, that's a good point as well. One of the things that came to my mind is in doing what I'm doing right now, or not necessarily just teaching, but any kind of Christian service. I don't know if it's ever a temptation to you guys, but to do it just a little bit. For your own glory, uh, to to receive praise from from men, and you know to want to be thought of highly by other people, and so I think that's sometimes a, a temptation that um, you got to fight against and pray against that the Lord uh, they would have your motivations be correct and that it would be for God's glory and not your own. Um, that's something that can hinder you, I think, from serving with a clear conscience as well. Um, so moving on, there it says, as I remember your tears. And it doesn't tell us for certain uh, what these tears were. Most assume that this is probably the, t the tears that Timothy would have shed at their latest parting uh, when, they, when they left one another. And again, shows the close relationship that they had with one another that it brought them to tears just at the thought of leaving one another. And so, um, and Paul says he longs to see Timothy again in order to be filled uh, with the Spirit, or excuse me, filled with joy. This speaks to our need for Christian fellowship, I think, and um, the joy that that brings you. I mean, doesn't it bring you great joy to, to come to church or go to Bible study or whatever and be around like-minded believers who value the same things and believe in the same things and hold true to the same things? I know it brings me great joy. I don't know, just, uh, have you ever ran into like a member of Trinity Baptist out in the wild somewhere and like out in the... You're in the store and you see somebody and it just you haven't even said anything to them yet, but it just you know that that's a brother or sister in Christ. They're on this you know fighting the same battle that you are, and it can just bring you uh, a lot of joy in your heart. And so you had something you want to say? Well, I was just going to kind of believe which like you know we talk a lot about rejoicing in the Lord, which is obviously helpful and, and good and you know, true and everything, but that doesn't exclude also rejoicing in brothers and sisters. You know, it's not like it's either or. Mm -hmm. Perhaps part of the way that we rejoice in the Lord is through the brothers and sisters He's given us. You know, in that church family, otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember. I was having a conversation with somebody about Genesis 2 and how God said it's not, it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, for even Adam, like he needed, you know, a wife. Um, and his individual relationship with the Lord evidently was not enough. He needed, you know, a wife under those circumstances. And that, that doesn't like say anything bad about God. It's just how God's made the universe that we need other people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so also, of course, we're to rejoice in the Lord. But I think part of how we do that is by rejoicing in the Lord's people. Yeah, for sure. Definitely is something to rejoice about. Um, so then Paul says he is reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. It's not a lot of time to get into this, but I guess we'll start and get where we can. He's reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. So he says, I long to see that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, of faith that dwelt first and your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So let's just stop at the term there, sincere faith, and talk about that. Uh, it's probably the most important question that anybody can ask themselves, and that is, you know, how do I know that my faith is sincere and not, I don't have some sort of false assurance uh, of my faith? So what are some ways in which you, or evidences in your life that you would look towards um, to confirm that your faith is sincere? 
Anybody got anything? Obedience. Obedience. Well. Yeah. Yeah, my conviction of mm -hmm. when I recognize I'm I'm sinning mm -hmm. uh, as a father. Yeah. Do I maybe not repent perfectly, but mm -hmm. see that change yeah. over a period of time mm -hmm. at least? Yeah, I think that's definitely one of them. And I got uh, that's some of the ones I'm going to go over here. Do you guys? Trial. Yeah. That's I was thinking back to the conversation I had with my neighbor. That uh, I rejoice in the fact that I didn't brag. I didn't count tower or came in to, you know, mm -hmm. you come out of that and you're like, okay, it's kind of reassuring me that this is your faith. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think when you've been put through the test of some of the hardest things in your life and yet have still remained faithful, not by your own ability, but by God's grace, can be a good sign that you are saved. Did you have something to say? Yeah, I, I think it goes also. If you're concerned about it, there's there's faith there too. It's it's like someone goes, you know, I've I repented of my sin, but I still worry about it. Am I still saved? If you're worried about it, there's that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah. It's probably the conviction of the Holy Spirit is yeah. working in your life. Um, so yeah, that is a good sign. Anything else that anybody wanted to add? Ben, go ahead. Yeah, to read the Word of God and realize what it says about your condition and about who God is, um, is, is certainly it. So I'll go through a couple of the things. We're about out of time here, but of ways that you could look towards to find out whether or not your faith is sincere. The first one is what is your faith in, I think is the most important one to um, figure out whether you have that right or not. And so your faith should be solely placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is uh, placed in the life that he lived, that he was sent to earth to die and lived a perfect life, life that you and I couldn't live. And um, didn't sin and... and not only action, but didn't sin in thought either, which is really hard to believe. I don't know how that's possible. But uh, he didn't sin in, in any way possible and then was arrested and, and sent to the cross and nailed to the cross and crucified. And uh, the wrath of God that should have been poured out on you and me and everybody who would believe was then poured out on him. And he, was, uh, he bore that wrath and satisfied that wrath. And the best about him was laid upon us and the worst about us is laid upon him. It's the greatest exchange that you could ever conceive of. And that's what took place for you at the cross if you are a believer. And so that's what our faith has to be in. It is in the righteousness that Christ has earned on our behalf. It's not on any good works that we've done. It's not on us outweighing our good with our bad. I think you would be a fool if, if you thought that that was possible. You would certainly be ignorant to what the Scripture says. Uh, there's no possible way to do that. So your faith has to be in Christ and in Christ alone and in Him as your way of salvation. So that's number one. Number two... And the rest of these things really flow out of number one being correct. I think to some degree or another, if number one is correct, these things you will see in your life. Now, there's Christians that are more faithful than other Christians. There's Christians that sin more than other Christians. Um, so it is to a degree, but you should see some level of these things in your life if your faith is in the right thing. And the second one is conviction and repentance of sin that Brad, Brad brought up. Um, you should see this conviction... And we've been talking about the Holy Spirit in, in Pastor Tim's recent sermons. And the one aspect is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This should be a part of your life. 
And then a lot of times, you know, the things that you really didn't mind doing when you were an unbeliever it didn't convict you at all. And then now that you are a believer, you have no desire whatsoever to be anywhere near those things. And so that's the kind of thing that you should see evident in your life. And conviction is important, uh, but if it's not accompanied by repentance, then it really isn't doing you any good. And I think Pastor mentioned this in one of his sermons. It's kind of like if the check engine light comes on in your car and you just tape over it and don't listen to it, well, that's not very wise and it's not doing any good. Um, so you need to listen to that conviction. And as I think Kathy mentioned, you need to repent of that sin and be constantly confessing that sin to the Lord. And if this is evident in your life, uh, that's another sign that you uh, are probably a believer. And then Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So it's important that we see the conviction and repentance of sin in our lives. It's 10.30 now, so, or, yeah, 10.30. So I'll wrap this up here. We have more ways to go over to find out if your faith is sincere, but you'll have to come back next time to find out what that is. Uh, any comments, questions as we wrap up here? Okay, I'll wrap up. I'll close this with some prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to come together and study your word. Uh, what a privilege it is to have this freedom and to have fellow believers that we can uh, share these things with, Lord, and grow together and be encouraged together. Um, so we thank you for this time. We just pray um, that you would bless this uh, time of learning through the book of Second Timothy and that you would teach us all that you want us to know through this, Lord, um, that we would have a prayer life like Paul had, um, that we would have a sincere faith and that we would be able to understand and see that we have that sincere faith so that we had, could have assurance and hope in you, Lord. We thank you for the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus and uh, the hope that that gives us really for anything in our lives, Lord, and the peace that that can give us as well, Lord. So just continue to teach us through this series, and I just pray now that you'd be with Pastor Tim as he teaches, give him strength and wisdom, and help him to communicate your word to us and that we would listen and apply what we learn to our lives, Lord. So be with us the rest of this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.